Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, John Hudak tells us what's happening in Congress. In the past week, Congress had an unusually productive and bipartisan period. The Congress took up a bill about Iran nuclear negotiations, which was a sticking point between Congress and the White House and between Democrats and Republicans. It became clear during the week that there was going to be enough congressional support to override any veto that the White House would issue. And through some negotiations between the White House and Senate committees, an agreement was reached which satisfied all parties and the Senate passed a bill that the president has noted that he will sign that will allow Congress greater oversight and a greater role in the Iran nuclear negotiations. But beyond that bill, Congress also passed several important pieces of legislation in the past week. One is what's called the Doc Fix, which permanently changes an issue that Congress has faced for nearly 20 years, that being that uh, previous law required that Medicare payments to doctors be reduced every year, something that experts believed would cause some serious problems in the healthcare market. Congress every year patched this problem with a one-year fix or a short-term fix. This year, Congress addressed the problem permanently with broad bipartisan support uh, passing a bill that the president has uh, signed. In addition, Congress passed an energy efficiency bill with broad bipartisan support that was held up in the previous Congress because of language around Keystone XL. They passed legislation about human trafficking, uh, the Senate has, that was held up because of language about the funding for abortions. And with the human trafficking bill passed, it freed up what has been one of the largest problems facing the president since the new Congress was sworn in and one of the issues hanging over Congress's head. And that was the nomination of Loretta Lynch to be the next attorney general of the United States. Over the past few weeks, political pressure has grown on Republicans to hold a vote on her nomination, and her stalled nomination was tied largely to the stalled human trafficking bill. With the resolution of that legislation, the Senate has agreed to move forward with the Lynch nomination, and she's widely expected, after waiting nearly six months for confirmation, uh, to be made the next Attorney General of the United States. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening in Congress. My guest today is Mesa Jaubut, a non-resident fellow in our Center for Universal Education and former CEO of the Queen Rania Foundation. She's a senior advisor to leaders, governments, and philanthropic organizations on social policy and programming with a particular emphasis on education and international development. At Brookings, she also serves as the liaison for the institution with Arab stakeholders interested in engaging in the global education dialogue. Welcome to the program, Mesa. Thanks for having me. Last year, I did a podcast with two scholars, Hafez Ghanem and Lisbeth Steer, with whom you authored a paper on Arab youth education and also published the Arab World Learning Barometer. And I called that episode A Bleak Picture for Children's Education in the Arab World. Do you think that was an accurate title? Yes, it is. Um, the major headline from that report is that uh, somewhere around 50% of children in the Arab world are not achieving um, the learning that they need to be achieving at the level they're at. So uh, they can't read or write 
at the le- at the international levels by the time they hit grade eight. So that is uh, very concerning, and it does indicate there is a huge problem in the education system and a very big concern around their future uh, potential in terms of being able to um, access jobs and um, have the life skills to have productive lives. Also, uh, about a year and a half ago, I interviewed for the podcast Rebecca Winthrop, the director of the Center for Universal Education. And, and I know it's a really important distinction to make between children who are accessing school to begin with, which is one of the Millennium Development Goals, and children, what they are learning in school. So now we're talking about children are in school more, but the question is, what are they learning? So what are some of the continuing challenges um, for uh, children in the Arab world to their education? So it's exactly that. Um, the Arab world's actually made huge progress around giving children access to school. The biggest challenge they're facing right now is in the quality of the education they're receiving while they're in school. One of the uh, challenges, if we delve into more deeply, is that um, girls are doing much better than boys in staying in school and actually achieve better um, grades uh, and complete their education and go on to higher levels. But boys are increasingly dropping out in secondary school. So this is a huge concern, and it's starting to you know, manifest itself uh, right across the region. So not only in countries, uh, in poorer countries or countries that are facing conflict, but even in, in places like the Gulf. Uh, so this requires a lot more attention. And the quality of education at large impacts how children perform in school and their motivation to stay in school. So if young people, particularly boys, don't feel that they're receiving the kind of education that's going to contribute to them, actually being able to access the job market or improve their ability to get jobs, then they're less likely to want to stay in school. I do want to go back to these uh, <clears throat> to this big question of uh, what happens after education, access to jobs, especially for um, Arab women, which you've looked at. But let's pivot from where we are now to specifically uh, the Syrian refugee crisis and its uh, education component or the crisis there. Um, You're the author of a new report that just came out with Their World and A World at School. It's about education of children in Lebanon, specifically hundreds of thousands of Syrian children who have been displaced by the civil war in their country. What are some of the important um, statistics that come out of that particular crisis? Well, the biggest and most important statistics that we need to be paying attention to at the moment is that we have somewhere between, uh, well, around 2.6 million children, Syrian uh, children, out of school in the region. So this is in Syria as well as neighboring countries, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, And this is perhaps the biggest education crisis globally. Um, The uh, crisis in Syria has caused a massive humanitarian crisis, but children in particular have felt it, uh, not only in the trauma that they faced uh, and the number of children that have died or have been separated from their families, but now their futures are actually under threat. Uh, By not having access to education, they have no hope for the future. They 
are not able to have the protection that education provides them so that they can uh, actually have some semblance of normalcy um, or access to psychosocial support that we often tend to uh, try to provide through education. Uh, and then more importantly, they have nothing to look forward to in terms of being able to improve their lives in the countries that they're living uh, and eventually be able to stand up on their feet and have jobs. So this is this is the most important statistic. The other thing is in Lebanon in particular, which is what this report is about, is perhaps facing the biggest crisis among the countries that are hosting refugees. In one part, because Lebanon itself is a fragile state and has a, uh, many problems uh, resulting from it being um, a country that uh, has suffered from many wars, but also for the fact that it's not capable, as is, to absorb the uh, hundreds of thousands of Syrian children who are out of school. So the report talks about specifically uh, 400,000 children who remain out of school uh, right now, and that's between the ages of 3 and 18. Wow. Um we, we've seen over the past couple of years the, the government of Lebanon's extraordinary commitment to aiding the refugees of the Syrian civil war. I, I think I read a statistic that one in five people in Lebanon total are actually refugees. And I think you, you point out in your report, um, one in 10 people currently in Lebanon are actually children from Syria. Correct. And many of them, are, if not most of them, are not actually in school. That's, mm -hmm. that's quite amazing. That's correct. And the, the, the impact of that on Lebanon uh, cannot be underestimated. Um, one of the biggest challenges that uh, Lebanon and uh, the countries that are working uh, there to assist with refugees uh, are concerned about is that these young people um, have the potential to become uh, extremely disenfranchised uh, and they are not likely to be going back to Syria anytime soon. We know, based on uh, research, that the average refugees displaced for 17 years. So it's likely that they're going to be there for a very long time. And if they not receive the education that they need, um, they will uh, probably end up being unemployed, uh, competing for low-skilled jobs in Lebanon, uh, and perhaps also uh, young people who have plenty of reasons uh, to be uh, angry. And so that becomes a long-term, if not a short-term problem for um, the Arab government and society generally. Correct. And it's not a problem. It should never be viewed as a problem of Lebanon alone. It's a regional problem and a global problem. Uh, one of the most compelling reasons, the most compelling reason, obviously, to help these children is because it's their right and it's the right thing to do. But one of the most compelling reasons is the concern around the security of the region and what that what that means for the rest of the world. Well, given what you've just said about the, uh, the importance of the problem, the magnitude of the problem, you said it's the biggest education crisis globally. Do you think that the international community writ large is paying enough attention, or what more can the international community be doing? Well, unfortunately, the international community has not been able to step up to the level that's needed. Uh, for, the current, uh, uh, for the current school year, the international community has only provided 57% of the funding required. So there's a huge shortfall, which is directly impacting the number of kids that are able to enter public school in Lebanon, as well as be assisted 
through non-formal programs. We're all hoping that uh, the international community will step up with more funding, but funding is not the only thing that's required. There's a, a huge effort required to help Lebanon scale up its capacity so that it is able to absorb these children in, in public school. Lebanon's done a lot um, by providing access through uh, what we call first shifts, so integrating into regular school, as well as providing a second shift, opening its, uh, its schools to allow kids to come in the afternoon uh, to, to attend school. And um, there are also efforts that are needed around uh, coordinating uh, and assisting technically. Um, it's all outlined in, in this report, but um, I think that uh, what we're hoping for is a pact between donors and uh, the government of Lebanon and the implementing organizations that is built around more, more funding and more coordination and, uh, and capacity development so that with the ne- new school year, with the 2015-16 year, we're going to have a much better number uh, of, of kids in school. So to, to do this kind of work, to put this kind of report together, obviously you have to travel to Lebanon, uh, meet with these children, with educators, meet with officials in, in government and with NGOs. What's that like to actually do this kind of work? It's extremely challenging and uh, at the same time rewarding. Uh, to, to put a report like this together or any other reports around refugee education, uh, it takes us right out of, you know, a, a away from our um, desks and right into an environment that um, you can't take anything for granted uh, around education. So there's a there's young people who are extremely traumatized, who are facing very difficult situations. Um, so to reach them, you need to be able to understand their environment. Um, so we've we've visited them. We know that many of them are uh, actually working and in very difficult situations. Uh, some girls have been, uh, you know, have have had to resort to early marriage. We know also that the people who serve them are, are extremely challenged. Uh, they they're not working under regular circumstances, so it's extremely different than teachers who are teaching right here in the United States or uh, in fully secure environments. And there's it's highly charged. Many of the organizations that are working there um, uh, have, you know, high stakes uh, and uh, want to help and are compelled to take action. But sometimes not all agendas unite uh, under one vision. And so writing a report like this requires a lot of um, diplomacy, uh, patience uh, and a focus on um, the children themselves to to get the message right. And, and I'm also curious about sort of the process. What happens next? You've authored this report. Um, how does it how does it go from here? You've got the the Lebanese Ministry of Education and Higher Education. Um, you've got the organizations you work with on this report. You've got other pieces of the puzzle, the donors, NGO community, and, and the, the schools and the education itself. What happens next in this process? Well, in this particular report, we've actually outlined a number of recommendations for what needs to take place. And, you know, there, there are lots of things that, that need to be done. And we're hoping that, um, you know, the international community will respond to the call by uh, the UN Global uh, Envoy uh, former Prime Minister Gordon Brown to provide additional funding. So, of course, that's that's step number one. The other uh, work is really around making sure that everybody's 
you know, having the same message. And on the ground, that means being able to understand what are the challenges, what are the reasons that kids are being held back, kept out of school, and trying to address them head on. Uh, and we already know that a number of agencies have uh, started working on that. Um, there's now enough experience on the ground that they're able to understand that uh, you, this is not um, a cookie-cutter approach. So in some parts of Lebanon where the concentration of refugees is very high, they're able to try to tackle some of the very specific reasons why refugees are not in school, such as extreme poverty, fear, um, you know, uh, the the distance of schools from, from the settlements. So it's really getting into the specifics and um, making sure that they address the issues uh, head on. That, those are the, uh, th- that's the main thing that needs to be done. Okay. Well, the, the report is titled uh, Reaching All Children with Education in Lebanon, Opportunities for Action. I'll make sure there's a link to it in the show notes uh, on our on our website. Let's pivot from from there to uh, another topic I know you've been working on, and that is um, the Arab women in education and, and their participation in the labor force. It's a related issue. It kind of comes at the other end, if you will, of educating children. And you've You've looked at this, uh, you noted earlier in this podcast that more girls are going to school, more girls than boys in certain uh, levels of school. Um, and in fact, I think you have some data that show that at, at tertiary level, at post-secondary education level, throughout the Middle East and North Africa region, girls, uh, the ratio of girls to boys or m- women to men is higher. Um, and yet, three out of four Arab women remain outside the labor force in their countries. Can you explain why that is? This is um, this is a complex issue that I think requires a, a lot more research that we're hoping to do at the Center for Universal Education uh, very shortly, uh, because um, it, it's it's a massive loss to to these women and to their families and to their communities and and, and to their countries, uh, and it, they make a huge investment to get into school, and then when they do get in school, they do very well. Uh, and increasingly, they're studying um, difficult subjects uh, and preparing themselves as best as they can to enter the job market. What we're finding is that they don't enter for a variety of different reasons. Well, first of all, if they do enter, they drop off. They drop off when they get married. And this is a trend that we see, of course, around the world. Uh, Many women uh, drop off when they have children uh, because of very similar reasons to anywhere else, including here in the United States, which is um, not having access to quality, affordable childcare, uh, not being able to work part time. Uh, the The notion of working part time in the Arab world is uh, is almost non existent. So this is an extremely challenging uh, issue, uh, and also not having uh, access to jobs that are uh, friendly to a woman being able to balance between home and and work. So all of these issues are very similar to uh, issues that women face around the world. But there are additional uh, issues. Uh, some of them have to do with the fact that because there is a limited number of jobs in the Arab world. I mean, the Arab world has the highest youth unemployment rate in the world. So already there aren't enough jobs to go around to everybody. And when it comes to uh, choosing between men and women, the jobs are more likely to go to men than they are to go to women, particularly because the growth in the job sector is tends to be in a more traditional 
uh, jobs or what's considered more traditional jobs. So women tend to favor working in uh, the uh, governmental sector, so in public sector jobs, uh, because they are seen as more suitable, because uh, they are shorter hours because the uh, the jobs are secure uh, and also because they're uh, reputable. So uh, working for private sector where we're seeing the job growth is a lot more challenging and less acceptable for, for women. We also see a couple of different challenges and one of them has to do with the fact that to have a job now in the Arab world, you have to create it. And so that means you have to be an entrepreneur more more and more so the case. And being an entrepreneur is very difficult, but for women, there are additional challenges that have to do with her ability to access funds, to register the company that she's running under her name, to maneuver administrative and uh, procedural issues that are co- much more complex for a woman than a man. So all of those reasons add up to a very challenging situation. So My, my mom told me once, uh, when she was a young woman, the jobs that were open to, to young women at her generation were nurse, secretary, teacher, and flight attendant, although her father forbade her to be a flight attendant. Um, so that was a very culturally determined um, set of prescriptions. She didn't know she could be a lawyer. I mean, very few women were lawyers then, but they could be. Are, are similar kinds of um, kind of traditional gender roles still playing out in Middle East, North Africa today, like early in girls' lives, that sort of... Um, set the boundaries of what they can do later in life? Very much so. In fact, uh, a study that was done by a uh, sc- scholar under the uh, Kidna Scholars Program at the Center for Universal Education, uh, her name is Mayad Abu Jaber. She's uh, uh, a Jordanian woman who did a study that basically showed that curriculum early on uh, shows strong preferences, gender preferences, uh, turning women to more traditional jobs. Um, and even though young women graduate uh, with the full expectation that they will work, and they actually overwhelmingly express a desire to work, uh, when they do make those choices, they tend to lean to more traditional jobs. And when those jobs jobs are not available, then they don't actually work. Well, let me quote you from a piece you wrote recently. Um, you, you've called higher access to education without equal access to jobs, quote, a lost opportunity for women, their families, and their nations, unquote. Do you think Arab governments recognize this problem and, and also the potential benefits for trying to address it? I do think Arab countries recognize it. I think they're challenged to do something about it because they're challenged about the job market in general, not producing enough jobs. Uh, You see some governments really making a much bigger effort to uh, promote uh, women's leadership by having women in uh, leadership positions, such as the government of the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. Um, You you see also a growing number of role model uh, women who are taking on uh, uh, less traditional jobs, whether they're uh, pilots or CEOs or entrepreneurs. Um, But we're still lacking uh, the the policy and the partnership between government and business to create a much greater uh, level of opportunity for women. Uh, Governments recognize that if they were going to, uh, if, if they were able to get more women to work, that that will have a huge impact on their national productivity. And we've quoted some statistics um, 
we know that, for example, that women, if, if more women were working in the Arab world, they could raise their income by about 25%, their household income. But also for a country like the UAE, an equal number of men and women working would raise the GDP of that country by 12%. That's not insignificant. And that's even much more significant for a country like Egypt, where it would be 34%. So are you hopeful that progress will be made in this area? I am actually hopeful, and the reason is because I'm seeing much more women uh, take it take the responsibility on themselves to change the situation. And there are a few things that are happening that are definitely uh, helping them. One is technology uh, and access to technology is really changing uh, women's ability to participate in the labor market. So you're seeing much more uh, uh, participation by women um, through um, uh, jobs that uh, can be online, whether it's, for example, translation or um, uh, being involved in uh, a, you know, a company, uh, Saudi Airline, for example, the CEO told me that they're increasingly uh, allowing women to work from home uh, you know, to um, make bookings for, for the airline and to service customers. Um, so there are lots and lots of examples uh, of that type of work uh, taking place, but it needs to be ramped up. Uh, and I, I do think that um, we're going to see much of that come from women creating uh, more jobs, more uh, more companies, and also more companies themselves being involved in the solution and realizing that they could really tap a huge market um, if, if they involve women. Okay. Well, that's a hopeful note. I think we should probably uh, stop on the hopeful note. Mesa, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. You can learn more about Mesa's work and that of her colleagues at our website, brookings.edu slash CUE. If you have any questions for Mesa or, or any previous guests of the show, please send me an email at bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll try to get them answered in upcoming episodes. Thanks again to Ali Eisenhower for her help in preparing for this interview. And as always, my thanks to my producer, Zach Colzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahin.